Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. evening, children of the night, and welcome. To start off, a little update on StokerCon, and more specifically, the Bram Stoker Awards. Sounds like the event had a great turnout, and honestly, I'm a little jealous I wasn't able to attend in person. San Diego next year, though. Look out, I'm gonna try my best, fingers crossed. The Bram Stoker Awards honored some pretty spectacular gems last weekend, too, with Gabino Iglesias' The Devil Takes You Home and our good friend Christy Nogle's Beulah taking home the awards in the Best Novel and Best First Novel categories, respectively. In short fiction, Mercedes M. Yardley took home the hardware for her tale Fracture from the Mother Tales of Love and Terror anthology. You can look forward to hearing that 
and all the other frighteningly fantastic Stoker-nominated short fiction tales sometime later next month. Congratulations to all the winners and nominees this year. There were truly some amazing, terrifying tales on the list, and it made my to-be-read pile for the summer a little bit unruly. Speaking of to-be-read, a reminder that Tales to Terrify is currently open for submissions. Impress and disturb your friends, family, enemies, frenemies by submitting a story to Tales to Terrify. Show everyone just what kind of twisted stuff you're made of, and entertain your fellow children of the night while you're at it. Visit TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions to check out our guidelines and find a link to submit your own horrifying creation. Need some inspiration to get you started? Let's serve you up some fresh frights to get those creative juices flowing. Our first story for the evening comes from Christopher O'Halloran. Christopher O'Halloran is a milk-slinging Canadian actor-turned-author with work published or forthcoming from No Sleep Podcast, Tales to Terrify, The Dread Machine, and others. He co-manages the social media for the most active horror book club on the web, Howl Society, and serves as mod for its Discord server. Follow him on Twitter at Burgle Infernal or visit coauthor.ca for stories, reviews, and updates on upcoming novels. Children of the Night, join me for Christopher O'Halloran's Sound of Smoke, a Tales to Terrify original. By the time smoke tickles caterpillar fuzz in Herschel's nostrils, it's filled the room. It doesn't gently rouse him from his sleep. It pummels him out of unconsciousness, shatters his drunken stupor, and shakes his world. He can't have been asleep more than an hour. The train set wasn't going to build itself. It runs around the tree, up an inline he spent an hour trying to get right, over the coffee table, and back to earth where it twists around presence in a circuit that he stepped on more than a few times in the process of putting it together. The soles of his feet are still raw. Christmas was supposed to be pure magic. He could have waited to build it in the morning when everyone was up, but that was about as magic as traffic. It was the first Christmas since Isabel died, the first one as a diminished family. They've had four long months to learn how to exist as a family of five. It hasn't been easy. There have been a lot of tears, a lot of yelling, a lot of drinking. Was he supposed to not have a few mason jars of spiked eggnog while building the damn thing? Was the tree and the train overloading the plug they were jammed into? He should have checked every extension cord to make sure there wasn't exposed metal here or there. Izzy would have. She would have double-checked, triple-checked. 
Well, he didn't. And now the house is quickly filling with smoke. His rancher might will be made of kindling. Herschel rolls out of bed and falls to the ground. There'll be more oxygen closer to the ground. Smoke rises, heat rises. Yet the carpet feels warm, as if there's a floor below him, a room beneath his where blazes rage and lick at the ceiling. Kids! He chokes on the smoke, coughs until his throat is a ragged mess. He needs to make sure they're okay. Get them the hell out of here. His children yell for him. Their shrill, panicked voices come from the other side of the rancher. Prentice and Alex in one room, Ingrid and Alina in the other. His boys and his girls, separated from him by a living room, surely engulfed. He's tired, sluggish. The way Isabel felt after every 16-hour shift. She'd admit to nodding off at the wheel, and he'd chastise her about setting boundaries at the hospital before she ended up in their care. Eventually, she stopped telling him about those extended blinks on her commute home. It didn't mean she stopped doing it. Work burned her out. Now the universe is coming for her family. Not a chance, he thinks. Not a fucking chance. Herschel Ami crawls along the wall, mouth so close to the carpet that every time he inhales, he sucks in dust and hair. He tastes feet and laments that he's gone so long between cleanings. Daddy! One of his girls calls for him. Nalina, the baby of the family. Five years old and built like a linebacker. Strong enough to flip the coffee table. An act he condemns through stifled laughter. She isn't scared of anything, but she's scared now. I'm coming, he grunts. His head bumps against the wall and he follows it. Runs his hand along the sweating paint, itching further and further as he breathes corrupt air and dirt from the neglected baseboards. He can't see anything through the smoke, but his fingers soon jam against the protruding doorframe. Fire turns the smoke in the living room orange. Over here, Dad. The voice comes from the center of the living room, away from the wall, away from his guiding line through the house. It, it sounds like Prentice. But what would he be doing in the living room? He's the oldest. He should be taking care of his brother and sisters. Prentice, 11, sharp as a tack, smart enough to know better, smart enough to think twice before rushing into a dangerous situation. He's not the type to recklessly dive into the fray, not even to save his old man. Where are you? Herschel shouts. Here, replies Prentice. Get down low. He can't leave his son. He'll dart towards the voice, grab the boy, then retrace his steps to the wall and follow that to the kid's room. I'm coming, he says, rapidly crawling towards the middle of the living room. The heat is so intense that sweat coats his entire body. Dressed for the season, he's wearing a matching set of flannel pajamas. They're soaked now. I'm coming. His head slams into the couch. Where are you, Herschel asks. Here. It sounds like he's under the couch. Why would he? The bay window blows out and the blaze flares up. It shoots over the couch, fingers of fire singeing his hair. Glass range down onto the porch outside. Diamonds of destruction. What he wouldn't give to be out there. He could run through the danger, dive out the window, and reassess. Would there be another way to get them out? There isn't time. If he goes outside, there's no telling what he'll do. Pass out from smoke inhalation while they roasted alive. Maybe the call to stay safe would take over. He's never been a coward, but the flames have been feeling flighty. Maybe he'd justify leaving the kids inside. He doesn't even consider escape. Herschel flattens himself and sticks his arm beneath the couch. Grab my hand, he shouts. But he can't feel his boy. Fire chews up the couch, eating through foam and cheap wood like a ravenous bear devouring a deer carcass. Over here! Alex's voice coming from 
Where? Their rooms? We're all here. Is he joking? Alex, the trickster, the comedian? The kid that can diffuse any situation with a joke? What would life look like without that quick wit? Without the tears of laughter he brings to Herschel over the crowded dining room table? They're all there. All of the other side of the house. When did Prentice get out of the living room? Stay there, Herschel shouts. He knows better than to make a beeline for their rooms. It would be the best way to get lost, turned around on all the smoke. Instead, he retraces his steps to get back to the wall. It'll lead him to his babies. It'll take him around a cabinet Isabel had always meant to refinish. Past the bedroom, past the kitchen, and right to them. He doesn't reach the wall. He crawls through yards and yards of smoke and never touches anything solid. Oxygen is thin. His mind swims in lard. The only thing he can focus on? His children. Never has the house felt so big. Raising a large family, he and Izzy always dreamed of something bigger, something with room to run around in. Not one like this where they bump into each other like billiard balls. Where yelling for the sole bathroom's occupant to hurry the hell up was a daily ritual. His head spins. He shouldn't have drunk so much. He just couldn't stop thinking about Isabel. They would have had so much fun building the train set. They'd gingerly step over and around all the pieces, dancing in the glow of the Christmas lights, trying their best not to wake the kids. A feat much too easy in their small house. Prentice! Alex! He shouts, say something! All Herschel hears is the crackling of the fire. It roars like rushing water and snaps as if trying to get his attention. The smoke billows around him, buffeting his body with a whoomp, whoomp, whoomp. Come on, Daddy, Ingrid says. This way. Where is that coming from? Ingrid, his graceful girl with the long legs. It, it sounds like she's above him. Her footsteps tap above his head, putting those years of dance classes to use, doing a pas de beret out of reach. She can't be on the roof. Can't she? It, it doesn't sound like it's coming from outside. It sounds like she's practicing on the ceiling, crawling among the popcorn stucco as it crumbles in the heat. Drop down, says Herschel. Drop down, baby. I'll catch you. He stands, the heat baking his skin. His arms lift as if in supplication as he wanders in the dark haze. He's, he's caught them all like this, jumping from trees, off couches, into swimming pools. It's gotten harder as they've grown older and bigger, but aches and pains are a future Herschel's problem. He'll get them out, then chew on a handful of Advil. Drop down, baby! He doesn't watch where he's going. The flames reach out, caress his face. They grab onto his shirt and don't let go as he pulls away. They scorch holes in the flannel, and Herschel is forced to leave his daughter to crawl on the ceiling as he shrieks and bats at the flame. His feeble attempts eventually smother the flames, but his skin is left stinging and hot. He drops back to the ground and screams as his burns melt onto the carpet. The cells of his skin ooze fluid, blisters making sections of flesh like the bubble wrap the train set came wrapped in. Something in his throat tears, weakened by the smoke inhalation. Blood creeps into his mouth and coats his tongue while slipping into his damaged lungs. When he spits it out, the droplets land in flames, sizzling like steaks dropped onto an oiled grill. He's tired, but he'll get his kids out of there. He will. I'll get him, Izzy. I'll get him, hon. If only he could rest a little. Herschel lays on the carpet as the flames crackle nearby. It's peaceful. Like camping with his old man, cracking open a handful of cold ones after a day of fishing, 
sitting in his inflatable boat, catching jack shit while the sun tickled their bare chests and reddening their flesh without them noticing. Some of the logs on the campfire must have been moldy. A damp, dirty smell flirts with his nose. Pleasant burnt wood, but with a toxic undercurrent. Melting plastic singed hair. He'll rest a bit, close his eyes, give them a respite from all that smoke. They're boiling in his skull. Best to give them a rest. If only he had some of that spike eggnog now. It would soothe his burning throat, calm the roiling contents of his stomach. The bourbon might release some of the tension in his lower back. Even now on the ground, it feels threatening to seize up. One moment it'll go off. Best to just stay still, wait for it to pass. If only Isabel was still here, helping him set up the train, making sure the tree was plugged in correctly, fixing his fuck-ups like she always did. I can't do this, he thinks. I can't do it all without you. How foolish to think he had been the head of their family. It was her. It had always been her. He can hear his kids, their voices bouncing around him. Herschel is a baby in a bassinet, his mobile twirling from the sky while a gentle song caresses him. He picks out each voice. Prentice, the cracks of puberty, introducing jazz to the musicality of his words. Ingrid, her rasp and rumble, subtle, but all-encompassing when she speaks. Alex, phrases bursting with energy. Nalina, brash and aggressive, demanding your attention. And Isabel, his sweetheart, the love of his life. You tried, she said. You did your best. Is it going to be okay, Herschel asks. All he can do is whisper. The fire is no longer color, only brightness. His world is black and white, an old movie, something with a tragic ending. There's a spotlight in endless haze, the sun in his living room. Not flame, but fusion. It's going to be okay. It's going to be. What does that mean? He's crying, his tears evaporating before they can drip off his cheek. Are the kids going to be okay? But Isabel is gone, and soon on, so is Herschel. He passes peacefully while his children shout for him, while they call from the safety of the lawn, yelling, Daddy! at his bedroom window as the smoke distorts their voices, bends and reroutes them until their noise is like the tracks of their melting train set, rambling and swirling, coming from every direction. Prentice, Alex, Ingrid, and Alina scream a lullaby as their father falls asleep. Smoke builds a cocoon in which Herschel's Amago becomes final. That was Christopher O'Halloran's Sound of Smoke, as read by Stephen Gagan. Steve Gagan was born and lives in the town of Winthrop on Boston's North Shore. A graduate of the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina, he spent the next seven years in the U.S. Navy as a mixed-gas diving and salvage officer. Stephen then joined the family insurance and tax preparation business. In his off time, his passions are sailing, cooking, and diving. He is the author of two books, Bravo 2 Sierra, and Code Alpha, both military thrillers. He is also the author of several short stories and is working on his third novel. 
His two greatest adventures are diving on the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, in 1983, and participating in an expedition down to the RMS Titanic off Newfoundland, Canada, in 2001. Stephen is married to his wife Grace and has two children, Kyle and Amanda. Find out more about Stephen on his website, stephenrgagan.com. Thank you, Stephen. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Our second tale tonight comes from Joe Koch. Joe Koch writes literary horror and surrealist trash. Their books include The Wingspan of Severed Hands, Convulsive, and The Coup Day, which received a Shirley Jackson Award nomination in 2019. His short fiction appears in numerous publications such as Vastarian, Southwest Review, Pseudopod, Children of the New Flesh, and The Queer Book of Saints. Joe co-edited the art horror anthology Stories of the Eye, and has collaborated with several authors and poets on a variety of writing experiments. Find Joe online at horrorsong.blog and on Twitter at Horrorsong. Listen with me, children of the night, to Joe Koch's I Married a Dead Man, first published in the anthology What One Wouldn't Do in late 2021.
The rules change down at the docks after dark. That's where I'd find him, where daytime people masquerade, donning their desires inside out so the raw truth shows. You can spot your own kind, try on a new mask for size, and throw it in the ocean if it doesn't fit right. Things go on that don't stand up to logic and light. Things that need to happen so the daytime world can keep on kidding itself that it's all merry and bright. He liked it there, where the deals are made, sacrifices taken for granted and thrown away. You know better, we all do, but you still gamble, get a bad hand, lose everything, and keep coming back to do it again. Compulsion trumps etiquette nine times out of ten. I'd find him by the water's edge, one of a dozen dives crammed between alleyways smelling of fish, clabbered signs with not-so-subtle hints, entrance in back. A new one each night during that summer of 1984, and being underage and looking every year of it gave me an advantage with certain types of men. Yeah, he was that type. A tattooed giant in the doorway eyed my buzz cut and combat boots, and then settled on my breasts while sloppy couples stumbled past. Go home, little boy, he said. After I bummed a cigarette, I let him fill his eyes and one massive greedy hand for a few minutes. Enough, man. I pushed past him. The price of admission paid. Grim sailors drowned in scotch. Muses of elaborate gender nodded in post-coital stupor over tepid, drained carafes. The sound of water spilled through the open windows, as careless as the clientele. Water lapped the dock like the long tongue of a parched animal, tasting the pier's rotten wood and fresh sting of salt. Barnacles spied from below sea level, a horde of swollen eyes. A woman who was either fourteen or forty-five leaned on my table. I didn't know how to order a real drink, and she didn't ask for ID. How about I bring you a Coors? It's on tap. She tagged me as a fish out of water. I was grateful for the assist. I fidgeted alone, feeling like fresh young meat blinked on a neon sign over my head. I sipped my watery drink. I stood my watery ground. I waited for the waves to shift. An hour swelled up and ebbed by. I pissed the time away and had another beer. I dreamed about what would happen when the man I'd been dreaming about showed up. Sometimes the worst thing about dreaming is when dreams come true. There's nothing left to dream about. Your hope gets used up and your heart floats and fills like an empty bottle with no message left inside. If you ask me, it's better just to dream. It's like that jazz singer slash bartender at the club said last night. Well, he mixed my old-fashioned and sank sweet black cherries down into the bottom of the glass. They drifted like blood clots in amber. He said, Some people have all the magic. He swirled the all around in his mouth with the same rhythm he used to stir my drink and gave me what you might call a meaningful glance. It's all an act, like what I do on stage when I dress as a woman and do the act. At least that's what I'll tell you in the daytime, especially if you're the one buying the drinks. At night, I'll tell you we're all acting, all the time. My bartender understands this, and I'll explain it to you straight. Smart people wake up one day and realize it's easy to get what you want if you're willing to cross certain lines. You figure out where those lines are, 
You mark them and tamper with them, and your luck changes. Everything changes. Your dreams come true. Soon, you begin to wonder why you thought about dreaming them in the first place. Once you get everything you want, you forget what the hell you wanted it for. I didn't know that in 1984. I sent out my hope like a naked beacon of desire in the darkest night. I fell in love and fought so hard, even when the wrong vessel approached. I didn't understand that lighthouses are meant to warn ships of dangerous coastlines and hazardous reefs, or that I was sending out the wrong signal. To this day, warm beer on a hot night still disgusts me. Tastes like infantile rage. Thunder gathered outside the dive on the docks as I waited, mocking my puny internal squall. The deluge burst through the sagging clouds and sent all the wharf rats running for cover. The small bar swelled full, and there he was in the flesh. The doomed vessel, the answer to my warning light. He'd slipped in with the huddled crowd. Valise in hand, he smacked a rain-spattered fedora against his slender dancer's thigh. He was well-dressed, of course. A man of his age and position had an image to maintain. He smoothed his trousers and hitched his tie. The bar was packed. He smirked in my general direction, and I volleyed for his eye. He didn't know me, but he came over like I'd planned. He took the only seat left, the seat I'd saved in shameless, stubborn hope. He took the seat across from me. A succinct nod of greeting acknowledged and dismissed me in one elegant move. When the woman who was fourteen or forty-five brought over his scotch, I forked out cash quick before he reached for his wallet. He knew a gift when it fell in his lap. He didn't need the free ride, but I knew he'd never resist. He wasn't exactly a generous guy. He drained one glass and ordered another. I paid a second time. He graced me with a curious, meager sneer. I guess he thought it passed for a smile. With a third drink, his stern gaze softened. Liquor made him muddy. He ignored me while I waited like the patient tides. He tipped his small chin over his glass to nod at a stranger. A young seaman at the crowded bar, obliquely alone despite a tall, handsome frame. His fathomless brown eyes ebbed and flowed from me to the man who summoned him. I guess he saw the family resemblance between us. I put my money on the table and turned away as he approached. I wasn't here to pry. The seaman's voice surged from the same depths as his dark eyes. Hello, sir. I am Emmanuel. I snorted. His mother must have been Catholic. Good evening, friend. He held out his right hand to me. He leaned down and pressed his left on the dark-stained table. The wood grain swirled around the hand like it was a natural habitat, rough-hewn wood supporting a sea-battered muscle. The fungoid-like tendrils of my father's pale white fingers laced through Emmanuel's left hand as I firmly grasped the right. I felt ropey sinew speaking to me in a language of Spanish stringed instruments and complicated sailor's knots. I was in over my head. Emmanuel's grip said he'd make sure I didn't drown. With his free hand, the hand that was still human and not some sort of parasitic growth, my father seized his drink and sent every liquid ounce of poison down his open throat. The glass crashed on the table when he finished. 
Ice chittered and cracked as glass beats wood, wood beats flesh, and flesh beats nothing, but is a thing forever beaten in the end. Rock, paper, scissors, wood, glass, flesh. Crushing an ice cube between two molars and slurring around the chunks, my father addressed Emmanuel. What do you say we blow this popsicle stand and find someplace more civilized? Emmanuel moved behind me to pull out my chair. No one had ever done that before. My neck felt hot. I was ready to say stop when my father stood up, toppling, and Emmanuel rushed to catch him. Their arms interlocked. The door facing the street opened. Light streamed in. Behind the couple, headlights flashed, framing their profiles face to face. My father's pale skin glowed like a geisha from a war-era postcard. His features seemed made of cut glass. The precision of their severe cut softened in Emmanuel's grasp. The larger man loomed with the heft of a predator, completing the pulp movie poster tableau. The headlights swerved around a corner and the door slammed shut. Without the dramatic lighting, there were just two queers clutching in the dark. I grabbed my father's valise and fedora. Manuel winked at me. I followed them out. The rainstorm didn't relieve the air of its intolerable humidity. It added a metallic smell to the waterfront fragrance of aquatic rot and deteriorating planks. Having cleared, the night sky flaunted her stars without shame. She didn't know or didn't care that her cloak of diamonds was wasted on the squalid world below, a world filled with creatures who pulled their bodies out of the sea and hauled their flesh to shore on meaty paddles, gambling they could swallow enough air to turn their swim bladders into lungs and defy her sister the ocean's hold. Ahead of me, the men leaned on each other with their heads bowed, foreheads touching. Their secret incantations were hidden from me by the sound of the waves. Moonlight sparkling on dark water is supposed to be romantic. It's supposed to make you swoon and imagine the world is full of magic and beauty that only you and your true love can share. It's not supposed to make you think about the lurid, disembodied forces that might be gazing into your world from another plane, or try to entice you with murmured promises. It's got no business telling you to think of all the things you'd do if the barrier between you and that other plane somehow got broken down. As we walked, the sea transformed into a beast with a thousand eyes. Bright and hungry, her stars stalked me, poised to devour all my love and life and secrets if I gave her the chance. Like other foolish dreamers before me, I gambled with the promises I glimpsed in her carnivorous eyes. You'll say I was young, a fish out of water, and that I don't deserve to pay such a high price for getting in over my head. You'll say I deserve a pardon because I didn't know better. But the sea doesn't care about that. We all have to pay. It doesn't matter to her how or when she sucks you in, as long as she gets you in the end. I thought I knew a thing or two about beating the odds and making it onto dry land, and I did. I made it out of that place, that family, that nowhere life, at least for a while, at least for now. Growing older, I feel her watching me closer and biding her time. I hit the bottom of another watered-down glass and suspect it won't be long until she ends the dream and decides she wants me back. 
Behind the man of my dreams and his latest catch, I followed in tow, ready to be abandoned on the ocean's shore. I was alone on the moon. The water murmured suggestions. I listened. The lovers ahead of me embraced. Stars danced on the surface of the sea. I saw my chance to leave. I knew getting out now was the right thing to do. I stayed. If I were writing a mystery novel instead of laying bare the facts, I'd tell you I hunted my father down to kill him. I'd tell you that at the start because that way there'd be more suspense. Maybe I'd let it slip that I grabbed his valise to better balance the weight of the revolver stashed in my book bag. I'd describe how nervous I felt handling the gun at first, how I had to practice for weeks and coach myself to calm down and hold it steady, how I went deaf for a day and a half because I was too dumb to wear earplugs, how I learned to aim with both eyes open wide. But this isn't a mystery novel, and I'm not a writer. And even though I had a gun, I didn't use it. I'm not a killer. Not exactly. I'm just a kid who wanted to know why their father did what he did. He wrote about it in a private letter to one of his friends. Not as a plot for one of his crime stories. It's not hearsay or fiction. My father got married as a joke. He had a kid as a joke and left as a joke. He never came back. I guess a joke's a joke. Either you get it or you don't. I tracked him down to find out what the joke was. I guess I wanted to get in on the fun. I asked the question a few hours later. It was fun, wasn't it? We had room 333 at the Charlie Noble Hotel. Emmanuel said I was a shellback after it was over, that I'd crossed the equator. He didn't realize I'd crossed a bigger line than that. I asked my father the question while Emmanuel showered when I had the man alone. I told him who I was and what I was going to do. He didn't even bother to look at me or demonstrate fear. Shower water spit onto the cold tile in the next room. The door hung open. Steam moistened the air. The hotel room was infused with a fecal aroma embedded in the well-worn mattress. My father lay on the disheveled covers, becalmed. The weight, he said as if offering an explanation. His fingertips hovered above his chest. The perfect weight of a man's arm across your body. A man's arm with its heft and its hair and its callousness. The smell of him opening up another world. He inhaled and pulled the silk pastel robe closer to his throat. Eyes closed, he smoothed his wig tenderly and toyed with a soft curl. The secrets of the valise adorned him, his makeup and powder all applied with more finesse than I had yet to master. The sacraments of his transformation smeared the pillow covers and bedsheets. He was more ethereal and beautiful than I'll ever be. He came out of his reverie and lit a cigarette. He didn't offer one to me. You're not mine, you know. I never touched that woman. Sorry, kid. He smoked like a movie star, languid except for the filthy set dressing. I mean, what did you want with your pop anyway? A trust fund or something? Fat chance in this world. You're better off without the guy, whoever he was. I shoved the window up so I could hear the sea and taste the salt. There had to be something more for me here than the smell of cigarettes and shit. 
The ocean wanted to talk to me that night, even if my father didn't. She wanted to tell me stories older than the senseless affairs of men and women, prettier than the cruelty heaped on the starry creatures stuck between their grunting bodies. She wanted to answer questions I didn't know how to ask. She knew my secrets, and she told me a few of her own. Her eyes sparkled. Her tongue tasted the shore. She came and went in foaming waves, flirting with me. She had a lot to say. If I listened too long, I'd turn into a pillar of salt. Manuel broke the spell and pulled me back from the window ledge. I didn't hear the shower stop of the sound of the ocean screaming her ancient desires and deadly commands, sinking her mighty jaw into the tender lip of the battered shore. I was halfway out the window on the third floor. Emmanuel put his arms around my waist so I didn't fly away. Careful, little one. He guided me away from the window, treated me like an animal that had been spooked. I looked up at him and shuddered with recognition. The ocean that was calling me infected his dark brown eyes. I understood then that my father was a drowned man. The sea would take him, but not tonight. It would take him slowly, through the swell of a hundred merchant seamen's violent erotic beatings, and the currents of hard liquor poured down his open throat. The ocean would fill him. I needed only to follow and bear witness. He wanted that. Black water would fill him, sinking into his veins like a cherry-flavored blood clot swollen in amber. He'd welcome it when the time came, but not tonight. He wasn't ready. He wasn't sorry. He had thirty years to go before he'd realize I spared his life so he could suffer alone with homophobia and the stench of a gangrenous leg. Thirty years before he'd drink himself to death trapped in a wheelchair and watching his mother die. I'd read his books. I knew his weakness. I knew how to use it against him. But not tonight. He needed a few decades to get ready for remorse. I'm patient. I know how to wait. It's one of the skills I acquired listening to the ocean, swallowing her salt and wailing with her in ecstasy on that black ancestral shore. Stars like broken glass still litter her edges where nothing solid can tread. Like the brooding tides, I can come and go. I threw the gun in the dumpster behind Wendell's oyster house. I should have pawned it, but I was young and stupid. My father died in 1968, when I was two years old. He didn't know who I was. He didn't remember me as the kid from the hotel and the bar. Well, there must have been a lot of kids. But he knew who I was and that I was with him when he died. I saw the terror in his eyes. My mom will tell you I was at a birthday party that day, and I was wearing a light blue sweater because it was a cool afternoon. She'll give you all the details and swear up and down it's true. She's probably got pictures. But these are the facts. I was with him when he died. He saw me in the lukewarm scotch spilling from his cracked tumbler, the one with the bad edge he drank from even though I kept cutting his lip. He saw me in the cigarette burns on the sheets reflected in his empty eyes. He tasted me in the last black drop of poison that seeped down his throat to render the gift of an aneurysm and halt his empty heart. I was in the ocean 
waiting for him, where I've always been, where he longed to be. I took him and filled him, and he welcomed me. Joke's on him for pretending to be the tough guy, or on me for performing womanhood well enough to cultivate his dissolution through incestuous alchemy. When in the depths our bodies fill with fish, our tender flesh waterlogged, our soft tissues torn by bloat, we'll be together in a foreign, starry place. Watched by sea and sky, we'll be more than a woman or a man together, more beautiful than both of us alone. We'll be on another plane, where the sea keeps her promises, and everlasting darkness feels like a fair enough price to pay for the remains of his bitter and tainted love. First we'll dream, and then we'll die. That's all he ever wanted. I waited, and when the time was right, I came for him, across the ocean and across time. I'm here, in the melting ice in the bottom of the glass that looks like a cracked skull. I'm in the poison that ousts the water in my temporal body and gives me the shakes early in the day. I'm in the amber water that smells like wood. He sniffs and approves and takes the last sip unto death. I knew my father wanted me. I knew it all along. That was Joe Koch's I Married a Dead Man, as read by Colin Duncan. Colin Duncan is a well-spoken man of strangely indeterminate age. He often uses archaic words and speaks of centuries past, as if he had personally witnessed them. But, of course, that would be impossible. These days he lives in the Pacific Northwest, where he sells sustainable clothing by day and teaches martial arts by night. Thank you, Colin. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, Kathy Robinson, Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, 
but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we dive deep into the infernal depths with more Tales to Terrify. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 